DTV podcast for October 2019, volume 57, number 10. My name's David Fisakli, I'm DTV's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, DTV editor-in-chief. So this month, our editorial is linked to our main article, and both talk about fibrates, but I wonder whether we should be radical and do them the other way around. So let's focus on the article first, and then come back to the editorial. So, James, what's the article about? So, in this article, we, we re-look at fibrate prescribing in the UK and in general and ask ourselves, actually, is there any good evidence to support the current level of fibrate prescribing in the UK? And the author, who's been through both the evidence and the current pattern of prescribing, picks out evidence for both use and safety? Yeah, so we go right back to first principles and we look at some Cochrane reviews on the evidence behind fibrates, of which there are still four licensed uh, in the UK. We look at what perhaps we should be using them for and also really the big issue is should we still be using them in the management of cholesterol treatment in patients who are at risk of CHD, cardiovascular disease. So in the digging a little bit further into the evidence itself, primary prevention, is there much to say that they have a place? So we have some primary prevention evidence, moderately good that they reduce major cardiovascular events. Um, The Cochrane Review thought about the numbers needed to treat over five years of about 112, um, but with no change, no no difference in mortality outcomes. So that doesn't sound as good as a statin. No, so if you look at statin use and if you look at just a 2 millimole per litre reduction in lower density lipoproteins with statins, the number needed to treat is just 45. And for that, you get a 45% reduction in cardiovascular events. So it, it is the, statins are so much better. And similar pattern for secondary prevention? So in secondary prevention, actually, there is no reduction in primary outcomes of major cardiovascular events if you use a fibrate. So really, in secondary prevention, they have no obvious benefit. So does that leave them with any role in for patient use at all? Well, of course, you've got patients with very high triglycerides, hypertriglyceridemia. They are at increased risk of acute pancreatitis, and they should be managed with fibrate prescribing. So that element remains in place. But that's pretty unusual. I mean, I can't think in my own practice of any patient I've got who's had a triglyceride above 10 millimoles per litre, which is when you start um, using fibrates. So it's, it's a rare reason, but it's really the only reason that makes any sense from an evidence-based point of view. And that sounds a bit as though that would be in the realm of specialist management. Absolutely. I think by that point you are looking at specialist management, certainly. Okay, so the article takes us through the story of fibrates, where we are, why they're used, and what the evidence says. So what does the editorial then do? So really the editorial then says, you know, let's look at uh, medicines optimization and let's look at the issues of patient experience, effectiveness of drugs, the evidence base, and safety, and ask ourselves whether... About the nine million pounds we're currently spending in the UK on these drugs is actually the right thing to be doing. And one of the elements that Tech Kong, who wrote the editorial, has picked up is that there's a 16-fold variation in CCG prescribing for fibrates. So there's something very odd going on here. It seems as if in some areas the prescribing is is low, and perhaps as you'd expect now that. Uh, 
it's clear the evidence base is poor for these drugs. But in other areas, it does seem as if they are still being prescribed in quite high numbers. So the argument from the editorial is we should be using those principles of medicines optimization, which are becoming more familiar to everyone, and apply it to fibrate prescribing and just check whether those patients who are receiving them, it's still the best drug for them. Absolutely. And I think, you know, my, my own experience of this is that you, these patients are often patients who were involved with endocrinologists in the 1990s even, where they were found to have perhaps very high levels of cholesterol. Perhaps they've even had some uh, ischemic heart disease problems, and they've been on these drugs for years and years and years. And it may be that they just had a, a, a single trial of a statin way back, you know, around 1990 sometime or 1994 when simvastatin was out and didn't get on with it and was switched to a fibrate. And no one has ever said, hang on a minute, have we tried another statin? Have we looked at this prescribing and made sure that we can't actually do things better for you? So really good principle that, that is there a better drug that these patients should be on and has anyone checked it? But also just coming back to that 16-fold variation in prescribing, there must be some reason underlying that that just needs to be explored. Absolutely. And I think this is a lovely quality uh, improvement thing that practices can look at in their own prescribing um, and their own work. You know, how many patients have you got on a five rate and are they on it for the right reason? And should they not be being offered a statin, which would be so much more effective for them? Okay, thank you very much. This month, we've got a new feature, which is a an update from the team who put together the British National Formulary. They've included an update of what's changed in the BNF. Any key highlights or what, what do we include in this? I think this is a really useful idea. So what we're going to do is we're going to highlight any new drugs that have been uh, marketed. We're going to look at any updates to the monographs that are in the BNF just to give our readers an overview of what's changing. And I think that is useful because there's nothing worse than, than as a prescribing clinician to be the last one to know, for example, that something is no longer available or something has had a change in its license. So we look at some new drugs. There's another SGLT2 being marketed. We have a new insulin and lixisenatide combination. And there's, <laughs> heaven forbid, another new beclometasone inhaler. To add to the list. It adds to the list, exactly. But a helpful summary of, of what's changed, some of the, the guidance that's changed, some of the doses and indications. Absolutely. So one of the updates, for example, is on rivaroxaban, one of the, the DOACs, um, and there's a clarification of, of dose changes. And I think that sort of thing is really useful. We recently picked up on our own practice that a pixaban dosage changes in certain circumstances. And, you know, it's, I hope it's this sort of update that we offer from the BNF will highlight those sorts of changes to prescribing clinicians. Thank you. And also this month, we have one of the case reports that we've been republishing in conjunction with BMJ case reports. So James, what's this one about? Yeah, so this is an example of a child developing severe acute ocular hypertension following IV methylprednisolone as a pulsed treatment for juvenile arthritis. So it's quite a niche thing, but I think one of the useful things about case reports is they remind us about uh, certain adverse events. And it just reminds us that high doses of prednisolone can cause ocular hypertension. And we just need to be alert to that, particularly if you've got patients on long term. And in this case, the child was also having topical methyl prednisolone eye drops, and it felt that that was another key trigger for this. So I think, you know, just if we have patients who develop headaches or visual disturbance when they're having high doses of steroids, just let's remember that, that could be acute ocular hypertension. Okay, good learning point. 
thank you for that. And finally, just a quick thank you to all those who uh, do listen to our, our podcasts. I had a quick look at the podcast store and noticed that we'd actually been rated or reviewed by uh, some listeners. So thank you to those who uh, clicked the button and reviewed us. Feel free to leave us a comment if you wish to. And if you want to read these or any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com.